you know the vibes. Welcome back to a very special episode of the Hoop Genius Podcast brought to you by NBA 2K24. Myself, Momutsi, alongside me is always the three-time NBA champion, BJ Armstrong. But we've got a very, very special guest joining us on today's show. You know, we've been trying to get hold of him for a while, but he's been very busy over the last last 20 plus years running things in the NBA. You know, most recently he was with the Knicks, turning them from, I'm not going to say what we thought of the Knicks about 10 years ago, <laughs> but now they're a pretty competitive team. You know, he was part of the, the Pistons organization that won the chip in 04. He's, he's been key in so many NBA front offices. He's obviously also from BJ's hometown. So I got to say, what up though? Mr. Scott Perry, thank you for joining us. Hey, you, know, you sure you haven't been to Detroit? Uh, I'm, I'm trying to get the honorary hey, citizenship. Sounded pretty good with that. <laughs> I'm trying to get the honorary citizenship because I talk to BJ every day. I feel like I'm basically half Detroit now. So, so we here, Scott. How are you doing, man? Oh, I'm doing great, man. It's a pleasure to be on with you guys. I really appreciate and looking forward to spending some time with. Great to meet you, Mo, and always great to see my. My close, close friend, and and a whole lot of other things to me. He's, he's like my brother, so uh, I'm just been so proud of him. And you know, we've come up together, been through a lot, and yep. and uh, we're still we're still going, still standing. So uh, it's great to be here with you and BJ. Well, it's it's always great to have Scott on, and to our listeners and viewers here, Scott and I grew up together in Detroit, so we spent a lot of time together talking basketball, learning the game together, playing basketball. And here we are now talking on it. I was thinking this morning, I was like, we're on a Zoom call. It's a lot of things you and I have done together. But I never <laughs> imagined 30 years ago that we would be talking basketball on a Zoom call. And uh, <laughs> this is our feelings. I was like, wait a minute. We're so used to being together in person talking or if we're right. talking on the phone, but on Zoom and you know, it's funny this morning. I, I, you know, I got my early morning workout in. I must tell you that. that you know, yes. I, I yeah, you beat me again. You beat yeah. me. He, he's the only man that beats me to that gym. He does it every day. <laughs> <laughs> and I got a full sweat on, and I had on my Saint Cecilia t shirt. Oh, I thought it was, oh. I knew I was coming on the show. I had the Saint, and I got a, I got a good extra sweat that kind of Saint sweat that, that you and I know all too well. So, Mo, just to give you a little reference, Mo, St. Cecilia is a famous gym in Detroit where every player that has come up through the city of Detroit, from Dave being on down, right, as far as professional basketball, comes to the St. Cecilia gym, the Saint, as we like to call it there. And, Scott, that's where we, that's where we cut our teeth. That's where we learn the game, playing, competing, and from Scott, myself, one of our one of our other good friends, Fred Cofield, but everybody, Dave Bean, Derek Coleman, Jalen Rose, every player from Detroit, Magic Johnson, all these guys used to come to the Saint and play. And that's kind of where you learned and you really got your credibility, as they, as you kids say, the street cred, right? That, but that's what we were doing. You played there. Isaiah Thomas, when he came Earn your stripes, er BJ. Earn yes, your yes, stripes. Yes, yes. So the, the Saint is what is what we do and uh, where we all learned how to play. Man, that's love. I mean, I've got to call out my boys at this point because, you know, you're here doing the podcast and your childhood friends are NBA general manager. My friends ain't nowhere near being NBA general manager. So, <laughs> fellas, if you're listening, 
<laughs> you guys, you got some work to do. You're letting me down over here. <laughs> you know, it's great to finally have you on the show, Scott. You know, BJ's been saying for, since we started doing this, this is our third season now, third full season uh, doing a show that we need to get you on. But obviously you were busy doing things with the Knicks. Um, over the off season, you've decided to kind of step away from that, a mutual decision to part ways. What kind of prompted a change in direction and taking some time away from the team? Well, I've been going 36 straight years in basketball mode. Coached for 13 years in college, then went straight into the NBA. Spent the past 23 years there uh, in some wonderful places. You know, you mentioned Detroit earlier, where I spent over half my career. And then the last six years as general manager in, in New York with uh, some other good stops in between, like Seattle, uh, Orlando, and uh, Sacramento. But uh, it was just time. Um, for me to kind of get a different look, get away for for a little bit. Um, I still got a lot of energy and a lot of basketball left in me. Uh, but the good thing that came out of everything, when I went to New York, and you alluded to it at the top of the show, the Knicks weren't in a good place at all. <laughs> no. To, to put it mildly. And I feel really good after being there six years that – Upon leaving, it was a good time to leave because I think the, the team is in a good place. It's stable. Uh, we just made it to the second round of the playoffs, have been to the playoffs two of the last three years. So it left it in a good good space, and it was a good time to, to move on. Uh, back down here in Florida now with my wife, uh, who mm. we've been apart the last couple of years because I've been up in New York, and she's been down here running her, her art business, her um here in Delray Beach, Florida. So uh, good good break. And uh, I'm just looking forward to this year and really still being heavily involved in basketball and, and seeing what's uh, and seeing what lies ahead. You know, Mo, and just sort of catch you up to speed, Kimberly Perry, Scott's wife, and I, a little sidebar, we attended a basketball camp together, my very first basketball camp. At St. Cecilia was okay. with Scott's wife, Kimberly yeah. Perry. That's how far we go back. That's, crazy. That's how far yeah. we go back. Bro. Your wingman <laughs> right here, you know. <laughs> I know, I know. BJ's there at the council. Yo, you got to meet my boy Scott. You know, he's to my boy. Now look at well, you guys, huh? I was just trying to learn how to dribble basketball back then, but that's how far <laughs> we go back. You know, Scott he learned um, pretty quickly, though, Mo. He learned yes. pretty quickly. Uh, he did indeed. So, Scott, you 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 mentioned you've been in, involved in basketball, whether it's collegiate or the pros. So, I work, tell me about the game and what the evolution of the game before we get into to, the current game. Tell me the biggest change you've seen over your career as far as the young people now and the way the game is played, the way the game is currently played under today's coaches and the rules and all the things that they're doing now. I'm going to start back in high school which was uh, uh, when I was coaching in college. I started coaching in college back in 1988. And the landscape of high school basketball was much more traditional, kind of what we grew up with, BJ. Mm -hmm. uh, the high schools, you know, young people stayed at home uh, in, in, in their cities, played for their local high schools, but whether they went to a public high school or, or a private high school but they stayed in their cities and competed. Their high school coaches were a big part of their lives. Um, and they were guys who had dedicated their 
time and careers to improving young players. Over time, I started to see a shift as AAU basketball started and started becoming more and more visible. And young people started traveling the, the country playing against each other in AAU. The AAU coach and AAU atmosphere, if you will, continued to really grow and have a strong influence. And so what happened, college coaches who used to go into high schools and recruit their players now started to go to all these AAU tournaments around the country in the summers to scout talent. And you started getting players that started to committing a lot earlier in the summers now. So players started to realize, wow, I can, I'm going to earn my college scholarship really more so through AAU basketball than what I do with my high school team per se. Mm -hmm. So you just started to see that influence started to shift in the game. And so young people, then uh, I started seeing young people get individual trainers. See, when BJ and I grew up and we were playing, we used to organize ourselves. We would go to local recreation centers. Guys would get together. We didn't have an adult there, really, other than who opened the gym. We were the ones that were selecting our own teams and doing all that kind of stuff. Now, you started having more hands-on uh, coaching from uh, <clears throat> that was going on, and young people were just kind of being led around uh, a lot more. So that was the biggest change that, that I have seen, and just how the influence of the game uh, going from high school coaches to AAU coaches kind of changed the mindset of a lot of younger players. And when I made it to, when I started coaching in college, you started noticing that the fundamental level was maybe not as great as it was before. The athleticism was was excellent. Was has always been increasing since I've been starting. The level of athlete running, jumping, speed, quickness. But what I started to see in the pros when I started in the pros in two thousand, where we were getting players who had played three, four years of college basketball, that suddenly started to shift as guys started coming straight out of high school and then the one and dones. So now you were getting a less mature person, not just even mature basketball player, but you're getting a less mature person. So you were kind of having to, it forced you in the NBA to, to create a development system, if you will, that kind of was somewhat like college because guys were skipping steps. See, when BJ entered into the NBA when, in the Bulls, with the Bulls, was that back in 89? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But he had spent four years in college, and the majority of the draftees coming in the league had played three or four years of college. So they had gone through a lot of the growth and development, not only as a player on the court, but as a person off the court, being away from home for a long time uh, and just having to make decisions for themselves. Well, now what you see, guys are coming after a year in college and they're just, you know, they're not totally equipped for life yet, but you're giving them a handful of money 
and you're expecting them to be professionals. So we're fast tracking that growth and development. And I think that's been the biggest change I see. So now as I watch the game, and I don't want you look, there's tremendous talent, there's great right. talent. It's just not quite as mature every night. And again, you know, it's almost impossible for it to be because, uh, again, guys have skipped the level of play and training, only having one year at the collegiate level, or some in some cases, none. Um, and now, you know, we're, you know, I think once they've been in the league three, four years, now they have attained all of that um, knowledge, experience, then you start to see a more finished product when that player reaches 23, 24 years old. Yeah, I mean, when you're a general manager now in the league, how do you evaluate all of this? Because with the Knicks, you guys picked up Kevin Knox, who was the youngest player in this draft class, and his career hasn't panned out quite the way the expectations were set for him. But then you look at some of the other guys, you found Mitchell Robinson in the second round, you got Obi Toppin, you got Emmanuel Quickly, you traded for that pick, um, RJ Barrett, who have all been great, you know, compared to what a lot of people expected for them. So what do you really look for when you're part of that front office making those decisions on draft night? How much does the lack of experience weigh in versus the potential of what they could be if they develop the right way? Great question. It definitely weighs in. I think the big thing that um, I know the big thing that I looked for was what the sphere of influence was around that player. You know, what was his family situation like? Was it influential mom, dad? Was it single parent home? What did that structure look like? Or, and were there other people involved that were going to be helpful in making the decision for them because when they're that age when they're 19 years old they're going to be leaning on somebody outside of your building and you've got to find out just how grounded those people are as well as the young people and, and they're going to be messaging what you want to have messaged to their young player so that he can grow um you mentioned Mitchell Robinson. Mitchell Robinson is a, uh, a great case study in what an organization can do to help a young man who maybe didn't have the stable upbringing that some other kids did. But, you know, as an organization, we really put our arms around that kid and we decided not only were we going to develop a basketball player, our mission was to develop a young person. And he probably is one of, I shouldn't say probably, he is the player that I may be most proud of in my 23-year career, understanding where he came from. Mitchell wouldn't say two words when we first got him. And when we, you know, now he was hosting, at one point in New York, he was hosting his own little, segment mm -hmm. on uh, Nick's Live where you right. couldn't keep it quiet. <laughs> and so to see that growth, and he's been the starting center for the last five years. So he, he's become a great story. You know, you, you talk about R.J. Barrett, one of the big things that we said about R.J. Barrett, his circle was so professional, so tight. Mom, dad, um, he had a big business manager, 
And he, he was not trying to, and his agent, they kept a very tight circle. He was very focused, a tremendously hard worker, all of the background. And that's the big thing that all teams do and as you really dig into the background of these young people. And it was consistent from the time he was 12 years old, people that we talked to, just about his approach, his seriousness. I mean, he was a, a young professional. I'll never forget when the, the lottery in Chicago that year, we went into pre-draft camp and we ended up with the third pick. He and his agent showed up at uh, in my room the next morning to meet with us at 8.30 in the morning and RJ was dressed in a suit. And that said a lot to me about who he was and what, he, uh, he won me over at that point. I mean, I had been watching him play basketball, but for a young person <laughs> to have that wherewithal, wanted to meet that early and express the uh, strong desire to be in New York. And because it's, that's the, the other thing about drafting players in New York, there is a lot of extra things that you need to be pressure just a, just a little bit just a little bit <laughs> it's a little bit you know and so everybody can't play there and so it's important you know i mentioned mitchell because you know mitchell was able to really function there because he's oblivious to the outside noise mitchell's really a young country guy and he wants his space so he wasn't someone that was attracted necessarily to the bright lights he just needed a stable organization and stable people around him to help him grow and, and teach him how to become a professional. Same with RJ. I mean, RJ has a strong unit around him so they can keep him grounded because it's easy for somebody to get caught up in the bright lights of New York. Mm -hmm. um, so you have to consider that. That was the extra layer for us. After we evaluated the young guy's talent, his character, we would always ask the question, can he make it in New York? Can he function mm. in New York? Now, we didn't do that necessarily in, in other cities that worked in. Now, you know, Detroit, where we had a very strong identity and culture, the question was, does he fit who we yep. are as an organization? And that, and that was important. And, and, you know, we did the same in New York. But that extra layer uh, is big, and that's why you see a lot of guys – struggle to make it or even if you trade for somebody bring them in that's another consideration in the trade or signing the free agent you have to always be thinking about can that guy deal with the scrutiny and the extra pressure that comes with playing in madison square garden 41 nights a year you, you know sky that you made excellent points and just so you know, Mo is our GM in waiting. He is going to be a GM in this league. That's okay. uh, I like Mo, it, Mo is all into roster construction. I'm taking notes. I'm Mo, taking notes. Yeah, Mo is Mo is taking notes here, and we all know we've never heard Mo. Mo is just listening and absorbing everything today on the show. You know, <laughs> this is the quietest okay. so, I've ever been. Scott is the only person that Mo Mo is listening to like this. But I always tell this to Mo, and I always say, I said, Mo, you you when you do become a GM. Until you've been wrong, you haven't be, you haven't become you haven't become a GM. You've never drafted before, and you mentioned a kid who is incredibly talented in Kevin Knox earlier, who's an incredibly talented player. But it's just more than playing for a situation that allows these younger players to make it. Scott, can you talk about fit, style of play, 
coaching changes. You mentioned here briefly about maybe the right city, whatever is happening. Talk about fit because you see so many players that come into this league and sometime on the first time they get to the right place, sometime a trade gets them to the right place, you'll see them prosper. Sometimes it never happened. But these young people are incredibly talented. And talk about fit, Scott, and, and how important that is, especially with today's young player because of the inexperience of those players. That is huge. And I think you, you, that question gets to the central is, issue of every draft. I often would say, depending upon the draft and the level, the depth of that draft and talent, that there may be five or six players who are not only good enough, but mentally strong enough and adaptive enough to be drafted by any of the 30 teams and make it. Can you say that again? again I say that's five important. or six now. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Five I was 60. On, 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 that, 60. on, on that yeah, five 60. or six, is that yeah. something that you learn through the pre-draft interviews, through the combine, or is that something you know before it even gets to that stage? At what point do you know who those I, I, players can I, be? I, I, for me personally, I've known it well before you even get to that stage. Just on my life's experience, I'm I'm be turning sixty here in <laughs> in November. I can't believe I'm even saying that, but <laughs> that I'm turning sixty. But what you learn when you talk about fit for certain players, a lot of guys, some guys can play underneath a strong-handed coach, other players can't. So again, you gotta be able, you have to know your own situation as a team. Who are we? Do we have a tough-minded coach or do we have a finesse coach? And then you now you start asking all these questions about the players. Does he fit in the way we wanna play? If we wanna play a game where we're shooting 53s and this guy is, a slower paced player who needs to have the ball in his hands. He probably won't fit to, to BJ's point. That's why you see guys bounce around so much. I think the best, my best personal experience of putting all that together was during the time in Detroit when, and when we built a team basically from guys who didn't make it at a number of stops prior to coming to us. They were talented, like BJ said, but for a variety of reasons, didn't make it at their previous stops. Give us some of the examples of those names, Scotty. Who who are some of those players? Okay, I'm gonna start with the the guy who who was the leader of the team, Chauncey Billups. Chauncey Billups, who I recruited in high school, was a great high school player, went on to Colorado, great player at Colorado, gets drafted by the Boston Celtics when Vic Bettino's the coach, who was a, one of the press and run. Well, that wasn't Chauncey Billups' game. That was doomed to fail really from the start. So Chauncey never gained traction in Boston. He, you know, and he goes to four other teams. I think he, he was in Orlando, Toronto, Denver, oh, I'm sorry, five of them, and in Minnesota. Mm-hmm. And in it was in Minnesota, and I can remember sitting with Joe Dumas, who was our president, 
Minnesota had a starting point guard at that time. His name was Terrell Brandon. I'm sure mm. you remember that name. Yeah, I remember Terrell. He, he's, he gets hurt in the middle of the year, and then Chauncey is thrust into the starting guard position. So he starts 25 games to finish the season or something like that, 25, 30 games. So it gave us a good window to what he could look like as a starter. And he played very well, helped the team get to the playoffs. And I, and I remember our conversation was like, hey, this if we give this guy the ability, you know, give, kind of give him the keys to the car, he could be our point guard. Give him the confidence that he needs because having bounced around the five teams, you know, invariably your confidence was a little bit shaken, but he was starting to gain it back there in, in Minnesota. And we just said, and again, I knew him as a, as a young kid, dating back to he was 16 years old. We talk about good foundation, solid family, all those kind of things. And he had that rough edge to him. Other guys on that team, Ben Wallace, who was the heart and soul of our team, you know, he was counted out from the very beginning. You go all the way back to when he was playing in junior college at Cuyahoga uh, Community College in Cleveland. Nobody knew who Ben Wallace was. And then he goes to Virginia Union. He gets uh, signs as a free agent with the Washington Wizards, or initially goes to to, mm-hmm. to Boston. I said, uh, and, and, and they had him at the small forward position, didn't they? Huh? <laughs> they had him at the small forward position. Small forward, and they tried to play him at the small forward. And let me give you a quick sidebar on that. Mm-hmm. Ben was so mad about that. He said, because he said, these people knew I, I, I couldn't play any small forward, but they just were trying to get me cut from the beginning. He never let that go. You can go back and look in the history books when we were in Detroit. Every time we played Boston, at minimum, Ben was getting 20 rebounds. <laughs> he, he took that personal. And I think if you brought it up to him to this day, his, 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 uh, his blood still would boil about that. But again, he had been a three different team. You know, he had been cut by Boston. He made it with Washington. He's kind of the end of the bench player. Didn't play much. Goes to Orlando. Mm-hmm. Plays with Doc Rivers. He's um, in the second unit there. Starts to make a little name for himself because they had that what they call that heart and hustle team down in Orlando. They went 500 with it. a lot of guys who weren't star players. They just were lunch pail, hard working type guys. And when Grand Hill was, which was my first year, was deciding to leave and go to Orlando as a free agent, uh, Joe wisely and was able to go to him and say, well, we can help each other here. Let, let us make this a sign and trade. And that's how we ended up with Ben Wallace. We They sent us back Ben Wallace uh, in that deal. But Rasheed Wallace, again, we were his fourth team. Um, Bip Hamilton, we were his second team when he had been at Washington. So four of our starting five, and Tayshaun Prince slid in the draft. Most people mm-hmm, had him go mm-hmm. out of Kentucky. He slid. So that became the common bond for that group that, oh, people don't respect us. They they discarded us. Let's show them. And then our bench, which we were a deep team, guys like Corliss Williamson and, and Darvin Ham now, who's coaching, and Lindsey Hunter, all those guys had similar type stories. And, and I got a chance to really live and be a part of the gravity of when you're talking about fit and together, because I, I would uh, I would uh, humbly submit 
that during that 10, you know, that decade that we were there in Detroit, our culture was as good as anybody's in the league. And our identity was very clear. I think us, Miami, San Antonio during that era, and then, you know, the Lakers, the Lakers are always the Lakers and the Celtics are always the Celtics. They, they pretty much always stay true to who they are as well. Yeah, culture and fit are absolutely huge points. Um, you mentioned some of the coaching stuff, and I wanted to get your perspective on the coaching side of things. Um, most recently in New York, you guys hired Dave Fisdale, and things didn't quite work out as planned. And then you went and got Tom Thibodeau, who immediately was coach of the year, had you guys back in the playoffs. Um, at the time, I remember BJ and I debating. BJ was really, you know, kind of hyped for Coach Tibbs to take that role. I thought, you know, my perspective was he's more of a leader for veteran teams and you guys were quite young at the time. Um, obviously, this is why you're the GM and I'm still learning because it's worked out very well. So I can, I got to hold my hands. You know, BJ, I keep the receipts for everyone. I keep the receipts for myself too. Don't worry, right? But what were you looking at in that process of Coach Fisdale is a hugely talented coach, but it just wasn't the right fit. What were you looking at when you were looking for a new coach to kind of bring someone in and steer the path with your organization of the Knicks? Again, I'm going to go back to what we were talking about a little bit earlier. You wanted to, we wanted to make sure that we were going to establish who we are. Every night that you play the New York Knicks, this is what you're going to face. And with things that were important to us, we wanted to be a tougher team. We wanted to be a very good defensive team. We wanted to be a very physical team. That was important to us. And those are Tom Thibodeau's strengths. That's who he has been as a coach, uh, even as an assistant coach a long time in NBA before he had the opportunity to become a head coach, both in Chicago and in Minnesota. So the young guys we had, we felt, needed that you know, little bit extra accountability, that extra push, but we're ready for it. When you talk about Mitchell and RJ, you know, we had just brought Julius Randle in the year before, who was ready to break out, if you will. You know, I think his first year in New York, that we brought him there, he felt a lot of pressure to really excel. Even though he averaged 20 a game, it wasn't the quality of game that he wanted or we wanted. And but again, it took him a little while getting used to playing in New York, which he really did. So we thought we knew that we were going to get that that structure, that organization from from Tom Thibodeau, and um, and the players were ready to move on. And I think it was very important that his first year too. You talk about player acquisitions. We were able to, I was able to get on the phone with my friend here and, um, and, hmm. and, and BJ Armstrong, who had a player who had played a long time for Tom Thibodeau, won Derrick Rose. And um, you know, obviously worked with the general manager closely who was in Detroit there, Troy Weaver. Um, Derrick was, you know, Detroit was trying to go super young at the time. So there was a, and that's the beauty of some trades sometimes, it, when it works for both sides. One team is going in one direction, the other, you know, 
again, Detroit was trying to build through the draft and go with a lot of young people. So they probably weren't going to play Derek as much. We were like, okay, we're ready to take that next step to the playoffs. We need a veteran player in here to help us. Because to your point, we had good young players who had gained some experience, but there's nothing like having a guy like Derek um, who, A, played for Tom Thibodeau, who was uh, very important to Tom Thibodeau's success, obviously, over the years. And B, that could help the young guys, show the young guys the way, if you will. You know, Derek had been in a lot of playoff battles. So he understood what it what it took. And immediately once we made that trade, his presence in the building, even before he took the first shot, even when he came into the building, it sends a message to your team that, okay, we're about winning. We can make the playoffs, you know, and and, and it worked out great. I mean, Derek had a tremendous year that year. We went on a very good run. And you know we we made it into the first round of the playoffs. We ran out of little gas in that in that first round, but uh, it was still a, a very highly successful year. So you, that you all, know, you know, Mo. Uh, some years ago, I was I think I was at home. This is this is pre cell phone and all of the things <laughs> now. <laughs> Okay, pre-cell phone. BJ, you're pretty much still pre-cell phone, though. Yeah, I am pre-cell phone. I don't like like technology, as Scott knows. Our listeners know. Scott called me and said, there is this young player he just saw. He said, man, I think I just saw perhaps one of the greatest, if not the greatest high school player of all time. And that name of Scott was? Kobe Bryant. Kobe Bryant. I said, Scott, he can't be that good. Scott said, man. And this is in Philadelphia. Young Kobe Bryant was at Laura Marion. Is it Laura Marion? Yeah, Laura Marion High, 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 High School. And Scott was the first. This is before internet and all of that. He was the first person that, that told me that this young man was going to be one of the greatest players of all time. Some years later, I called Scott once I started working in the NBA. And I said, man, I just saw a guy. And his name was? LeBron James. LeBron James. And I said, (laughs) this guy? Da-da-da-da-da-da. And now here we are 21 years later. Yes. Now, Scott, you and I just saw this young man, Victor Wimbenyama. I remember calling BJ Armstrong saying there's this kid in France. Three, four <laughs> years ago, yeah, yeah. before yeah. before everyone. Just, I'm going to yeah. put that in there, too. Yeah, yes, yes. It, Mo, Mo said it. But, Scott, from a league perspective and all of the thousands of players you've scouted, share with us, Scott, what makes these prospects and what you're looking for, what the league is looking for, and then give us your insight as much as you can share with us on what do you think Victor Wimbenyama is going to be in the NBA? Great, great questions. Let me add a little, before I go into detail, I might add a little color when I first <laughs> told BJ about Kobe. BJ was, I believe, getting ready to get married. I met one of his yes. uh, friends Terry mm. Porter, 
was playing in the NBA at the time, and, and he came in town for the wedding, and the three of us were going out to golf. Now, this is my first time meeting Terry. You know, BJ and BJ Terry, you know, this is my man, you know, Scott, he's from Detroit, blah, blah. And I'm sitting in the back seat of the car, too, and, and somehow we started talking about basketball, and I told him, I said, this is young man who's 16 years old, I said, he's the closest thing to Michael Jordan that you may see. Said, <laughs> the car stops. <laughs> I said, and, and so I see the two of them looking at one another like, you know, like, man, what's, what's the matter with your boy in the back? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, his name is Kobe Bryant. So anyway, uh, the rest was history. And uh, but things that I saw in him that you, you know, it, there's, sometimes there's a, uh, a quality, the, the, the way a person carries himself, an intangible that you can't quantify with numbers. I went, I went and watched Kobe Bryant, the high school summer league game in Philadelphia. I'm sitting next to his father. Kobe's high school team, granted, may have had one or two Division three prospects on his team. He was not, and, and they ultimately went on to win the state title. They were playing against the top team in the city of Philadelphia. As with BJ knows that, you know, Philadelphia, great basketball out of there. They had at minimum four, maybe five, you know, mid to high Division one players on that team. Kobe's team is supposed to get destroyed in this game when you're just watching the warm-ups and the early part of the game. I watched this game in the middle of the game. Then the next thing I hear, his father is yelling all these things out in Italian. And then I'm seeing all these adjustments. So I'm saying to myself, here's a kid playing this high-pressure game. Kobe ends up winning. He had like 48 points in the game. Nobody could stop him. And he was processing a third, you know, a second language during all this time. And that was he and his dad's uh, thing at that time. And it just, and then after that game, my experience, most high school guys were going to go out with their friends and hang out and have fun and, you know, see at the gym the next day. I said, Coach, you know, we're going to run home, grab something to eat. But you're welcome. Uh, we're going to a gym tonight to work out about 11, 11 30. Welcome to come over and watch us work out. And I said, that's unique. For well, high school, yeah, that's that, crazy. That passion, that, you know, you know I, I hadn't seen or heard of that very often. So that's why I was comfortable in saying that. I think this guy, he's really chasing greatness. He's putting everything else aside to, to become the best he can be. In his mind, he wanted to be the best player ever. So you look at him, and then you know when I first saw LeBron, I, you know BG had, I know BG had gone to see another prospect. You know that was the year that there were about four seven foot guys in high school mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that were projected to go in the first round, and I think LeBron was a sophomore. Mm -hmm. I had heard his name one time before. That I didn't know how good he was, but I had the guy Maverick Carter when I was a college coach. 
I was trying to get Maverick to transfer to my university. I was the head coach of Eastern Kentucky. And he mentioned to me he was giving up basketball to go spend time with his cousin back home in Akron. I said, who's that? His name is LeBron James. It meant nothing to me at the time when he said it. LeBron probably was eighth, ninth grade, whatever that, when he said that to me. But when BJ said, he, he said to me, he said, yeah, I know I was here to see these big yeah, fellas here. Mm -hmm. but who is LeBron James? <laughs> like, <laughs> he said, because what I saw, and then when I eventually saw him, he just had it. Yes. Now, you know, combination of size, just feel for how to play, and how all the other players respond to them on the court. And BJ knows this better than any of us when you're playing at that professional level, when you have the best of the best. And then you have that one guy, and BJ played with arguably the greatest guy ever. There's, when he steps on that court, Players on both sides, teammates and opponents are like, okay, everything is being geared or directed toward him. He's impacting the play for 48 minutes. And it's only been a few, there's only been a handful of guys that that I can, you know, say have done mm -hmm. that. You know, you start talking about the Magic Johnsons and Larry Birds and Kareem's other world, you know, that, 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 that's hard. So now you come along to a Victor Wimbenyama and not to apply any pressure to this young man, because I haven't had the, 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 the luxury or the pleasure to have met him yet. But from what I've seen, and, and I spent a week in Las Vegas when he was here uh, last year uh, playing against Team McKnight, I haven't seen a 7'5 guy. You know, Ralph Sampson probably was the closest in height in terms of having some agility like this. But in one of the first things I noticed, I said, he's 7'5, but he can sit down and move his feet a little bit defensively. He can move like a guy 6'8, six, 6'9. Six, That's rare. And he plays with, a, you know, people have tried to play physically. It doesn't seem to, to bother him. Obviously, he's got to get stronger to, to accomplish what he needs, but I think the sky's the limit for, for that young man. And again, as fortune would have it, look, I, he's one of the guys in the draft, that, again, any of the 30 teams, because he's so skilled and has the natural length and gifts, he probably would have made it. But boy, you're talking about a fit going to San Antonio for him, a team that has done tremendous work Tremendous structure as an organization. You know, Greg Popovich is a coach. You know, coaches greats like Tim Duncan and David Robinson and those big people. And um, so he's in great hands there. So I think whatever he can become will get maximized there. Mm -hmm. You know, all these great players in the NBA, they've got the – BJ and I spoke about this on yesterday's episode. You know, there's just a few guys – that can go to any team in the league and automatically there's an expectation that they made the playoffs or they made the conference finals and whatnot. I wanted to ask you about your time with the Knicks. There was a lot of talk about Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving joining you guys when they were both free agents. They ended up going to the Brooklyn Nets across town from you. Um, and as you guys missed out on those two, I think there were a lot of people out there who would then overcompensate for missing out on them by then 
overpaying for the next star that became available. So when Donovan Mitchell was getting traded from the Utah Jazz, everyone pretty much expected Donovan to go to the New York Knicks. I mean, you guys had young players, you had draft picks, but you actually sat tight and didn't go all in and and sell the farm, so to speak, to get Donovan Mitchell. And then you guys ended up obviously winning that first round playoff series as well. So it, it seems to have worked out well. But what's the thought process and the decision-making behind when it's time to go all in for a style or when it's time to sit tight and work with what you already have and try and build on that? Right. Again, little different situations when you talk about Kevin and Kyrie versus uh, Donovan. Yeah. Obviously, first because of the the first two were free agents. And yeah. I had very good familiarity with Kevin Durant because I was part of the front office that drafted him in Seattle. Mm-hmm. So I spent his entire rookie year with him, no Kevin Gray, tremendous talent. Would have loved to have him in New York. It didn't happen. To take you behind the scenes a little bit, in preparation for that offseason, what people don't realize, I think, again, all the media attention was Kevin and Kyrie. They're going to get them. You got to get them. But see, and as a front office member, you have to have multiple plans. And I, this goes back to my days as a college coach when you recruited. You can do the very best recruiting job you want to do. But guess what? That player can only choose one school. And if he doesn't go to you, then what are you going to do? So that training helped out. Always had plans B and C. So what we had for us, like, okay, if we don't get Kevin and Kyrie or one or the other or or neither, which ended up happening, what do we want to do? And so that plan, if you can recall, because we had already required, uh, acquired some assets and some other trades earlier in the in the previous two years. But so I wanted to get some veteran players in there to help those young guys that like RJ and, and Mitchell uh, start to send and start to play what I call more meaningful basketball, meaning we're a team good enough to at least be pushing for a playoff position the final week or two uh, in the season at minimum. So we went out, if you can call, we we signed a lot of short-term deals. That's how we, you know, Julius Randle was a target for us. If we don't get Kevin, because Julius Randle the year before had averaged 20 and 10 as a six-man in New Orleans. Mm -hmm. We could get him on a shorter-term deal. You know, we we did for him two plus one. And then we got guys like Marcus Morris, Bobby Portis, again, to increase the talent level, the toughness, guys wanted to showcase their abilities all on one plus one deals. And what it showed people around the league that, oh, guys will come to New York because they weren't coming to New York for a while, you know, good players. And they were going to be a bridge, those who really helped us, we plan on keeping and, 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 and moving forward with. Those that didn't, you know, no harm, no foul, they, they're able to go on to their next step. So that was the thinking there. So now fast forward, you go to Donovan Mitchell, who's an excellent basketball player, multi-year all-star, tremendous young man, New York, uh, New York kid. But you got to ask yourself, if you're going to, if you know, the other team that you're trading with is wanting to take Two thirds 
the three quarters of all of your good young talent and all of your draft capital is what is left behind going to be good enough for you to win or be better than what you are, you know, if you just hold on to what you have and be a little patient. So those, that, that's the thought process in that. And, 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 and obviously we, you know, we made a push to trade for him, but it was going to be done within reason. We felt because he was, he was a good player, but he needed more around him to win because if he was that singular force, Utah probably would have been in the conference finals if he was that singular force. But he wasn't that singular force. Again, and that's not a criticism on him. That's just an evaluation that you must make. And those are the tough evaluations. Again, I know the fan base, a lot of times people want names. But I'm here to tell you, and maybe I, my thinking is a little bit skewed about by my experiences in Detroit all those years because we won quote unquote, with no names, but people forget we went to six straight conference finals, two finals in a row and won a championship with no names. We beat you with depth and they were very talented. I'm not saying that, that you can do that every single time. Look, would you love to have a, a Giannis or, or, or Jokic? Yeah, that, that may make life a little easier to build around. But it's not the only way to to build and win. Well, Coach, you know, we could sit here and talk and, and, and you give us here. This has been fantastic. You know, Mo, Mo I hope you're picking up all of this knowledge. I'm this taking is, notes. The, the, I'm the, taking uh, notes. I'm taking notes big time. And the, yeah, the big thing is, you know, there's a lot. I think what, what, what Scott has said, shared with us here today on how difficult and complex this is you know it's one thing what we read in the media and then there's another thing what actually goes behind the scenes because you're having to make these evaluations on you know based on the information you're able to get um but before we let we let you get out of here scotty just what can you what's next on the horizon for scott perry and please would you come back again when when whatever is next you are well, now. First of all, uh, uh, whenever, uh, uh, whenever you need me, whenever you need me, I'm back. I'm oh, okay, back. okay, yeah, okay. I, yes, I, yes. I, I mean, because I this has been bad. I hope that I hope our, our listeners have enjoyed this as much as we have. But no. what's next now for Scott Perry? Again, I'm gonna like use this year to be, you know, remain uh, very visible in the NBA world, if you will, you know, what that's uh, attending games, talking to people in and around the league, uh, doing podcasts, uh, doing a little television. Um, so that's th those, that's what's next for me. And as I figure out and look at the landscape of the league, and you know what else I'm going to do this year? I'm going to really, I'm a big person on self-reflection. Uh, mm -hmm. We talked about it earlier and again, you know, you haven't been a GM until you've made a mistake right. and raise your hand in front of everybody. And most importantly to yourself, hey, I could have done this better, that better. So I want to make sure that I do that during the course of the year as I observe the action that's going on and, and 
it will, I'm sure, stir a lot of memories for me to say, you know what? Well, if I could go back in time, I would have made this deal versus that deal. Maybe drafted this person versus that, or maybe it was just something internal uh, in the building that you want to get better at. I'm, I'm a, look, you never stop learning. Just because mm -hmm. I'm turning 60, I do not have all the answers. So I'm going to be spending this year getting even more answers. So if an opportunity doesn't present itself next season to be able to lead a franchise again, um, I'll be more than ready to do that and be even better prepared to do that. So that's well, our 2023-24 season. Well, if you want all the answers, you can come here because we have all the answers here on the podcast <laughs> between Mo and no, myself. We have, all, we have all of the answers here. We're never wrong. We never lose a game. And we're just here to tell you, you know what, what is this guy doing? So we have all the answers here. So you're more than welcome to get that. But I would tell you this, in all seriousness, you know, you've been a life friend, not just a friend. You've been a life friend for me and my family. And I get a chance to meet just like yourself, to meet all of the people in this NBA world. The league needs you. The kids need you. This business needs you. And uh, I can't be happier to call you not a colleague, but a friend, a true friend. So well, we'll see you back in the NBA somewhere. But I'm telling you, Mo, you can't learn from a better person. And it's this, been it's, this is it's, this is the least I've ever spoken on an episode. Yeah, yes, I can't right? believe it. I, I know I, this is Mo's clone on the show today. I've never heard you Mo. Know, you know, listen, what I will like say this. is I appreciate you coming and sharing your knowledge. And um, I'm excited to see what's next for you. I know we've got a lot more to talk about. I know there's a lot of Dallas fans out there and a lot of New York fans out there who want to hear us talk about Jalen Brunson. So if they want to hear that, they got to subscribe to the show right now on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, so that they can hear part two when Mr. Scott Perry comes to join us for a second time. There's a whole lot. I've got a whole list of about a thousand <laughs> questions that I want to pick your brain on. But I know. Well, I love the, I love the tease. That was awesome, man. He's the king of the no, Mo is the king of the transition. You see, you see, if I ever become if I ever when I become a GM, no one's ever gonna have done a press conference like me. They ain't ready. <laughs> I'm gonna control the media, I'm gonna have them on strings. Can we make it when you become a GM? And whenever that is, you give me a call and let me consult for you. Let me oh, 100%. 100%. do that. <laughs> that goes without saying. You and BJ could be my right hand man right there, you know? Uh, and don't worry, if it all goes wrong, I'll take all the blame. Don't worry. I got you guys. <laughs> and just in closing, I just want to say to you guys again, I appreciate it. Mo, it's been great getting to know you via zoom uh and i look forward to meeting you in person at some yes, time. bj you know the words you said just uh said a moment ago uh, all of those sentiments are the same coming from me um you have been like i said a, a, such a special friend and you, you and your family um just the the learning the togetherness uh, through ups and downs, uh, I know I've always been able to count on you. And like you said, it goes 
my colleague doesn't even do that any justice. Right. So we're talking about true friendship, and uh, and we don't get that often in life. So I feel blessed and, and lucky that that uh, you are that and have been that for me, and will continue to be that. And I will continue to be that for you. So again, thank you so much, and uh, wish you guys nothing but the best. That's right. Basketball truly yeah. is a brotherhood or sisterhood as well. Shout out to the ladies, but appreciate both of you guys. And I speak on behalf of all the listeners that we 100% have to do this again. BJ obviously here every day with us, blessing us and introducing us to his basketball family, people like yourself stopping by on the show. That's the Hoop Genius Podcast. You guys listening can subscribe, Apple, Spotify, YouTube. Stay locked in because we've got a whole lot more coming this season. We're raising the levels. So there's only one thing to do. Make sure you get buckets.